Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So it's been a while since we have talked about Native American history, which means today we are going to talk about that time that a confederation of Native American tribes destroyed about half of the American army. Strangely enough, this battle does not have an official name, really. It's not called the Battle of So-and-So. It just gets referred to as St. Clair's Defeat, for the most part. Holly, have you ever heard this story before? I haven't, except in what you have told me as you have been researching it. I get the occasional (laughs) I am of, oh my goodness. Uh, Yeah, I had never heard about it either, so that is why we are talking about it today. And the background on this one actually starts with the Revolutionary War, in which, of course, Great Britain and its American colonies fought over whether those colonies could govern themselves as an independent nation. The colonies won their independence, in case that was a spoiler, I'm sorry, (laughs) Uh, and, and the terms for the end of the war were set down in the Treaty of Paris in 1783. As we mentioned in our recent episode on the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, many, but not all, Native American tribes had sided with Britain during the Revolutionary War. And a big reason for this was that Native peoples hoped that Britain's influence would slow down the colony's westward westward expansion, which was encroaching farther and farther into territory that had been occupied by just enormous numbers of indigenous nations for centuries. Great Britain didn't discuss the Treaty of Paris with its native allies before entering into negotiations, and it made no provisions for them. Instead, at the end of the Revolutionary War, Britain handed a massive stretch of territory spanning south from the Great Lakes, bordered on the west by the Mississippi River and on the south and east by the Ohio River, over to its former colonies. Florida and most of the land west of the Mississippi were controlled by Spain at this point. Britain did continue to occupy some forts and outposts that were in and along this area it had handed over, and it did so for 13 years after the signing of the Treaty of Paris. Britain argued that the United States' non-payment of war debts totally justified their doing this. From these outposts, Britain encouraged Native tribes to resist American expansion, sometimes providing them with weapons and supplies. But beyond that, this territory which would eventually become known as Northwest Territory, was now in American hands, and the people who were indigenous to that territory were basically on their own. Once it was controlled by the fledgling United States, westward expansion into that territory, of course, increased dramatically. The plan was to methodically survey all of this land, divide it up, and then sell it in such a way that people purchasing it could establish settlements that would attract people to the West's fertile farmland. This whole process was riddled with problems, though. People advertised land that they didn't actually have to sell. They distributed parcels with borders that overlapped one another. People double-sold the same land. And even so, people kept on moving west. And to be clear, it wasn't like the west was empty. There were already a lot of people living there. Some of them were squatters, which... The government dealt with by evicting them and burning down their cabins. But many of them were native people, either indigenous to the area or forced to move there after being displaced from land that they had been living in farther to the east. 
Finally, the Second Continental Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance on July 13, 1787. The Northwest Ordinance set up how the Northwest Territory should be governed. It gave this territory a bill of rights and a process for states that were established in the territory to then be admitted into the Union. The Northwest Ordinance also uh, specified that there would be no slavery or involuntary servitude in the territory. And in Article 3, quote, The utmost good faith shall always be observed towards the Indians. Their lands and property shall never be taken from them without their consent. And in their property, rights, and liberty, they shall never be invaded or disturbed, unless in just and lawful wars authorized by Congress. But laws founded in justice and humanity shall from time to time be made for preventing wrongs being done to them and for preserving peace and friendship with them. So, in what should not come as a surprise, this turned out not to be true at all. And we will talk about more about how after a brief word from a sponsor. To return to our story, when it came to treating with the Native American peoples of the Northwest Territory, in spite of the language in the Northwest Ordinance, the United States government did not really approach this process particularly fairly. Those, quote, just and lawful wars authorized by Congress were not an idle threat. They were basically the way the United States was going to resolve disputes with Native American peoples over land. Wars would be fought over land and the condition of peace would be handing that land over to the United States. In some cases, tribes had actually ceded territory to the government already, sometimes to Great Britain uh, prior to the Revolutionary War. And sometimes this was done under duress. Tribes also ceded territory that actually belonged to their adversaries or spoke for their allies without discussing it with them first. So it was kind of a, a tangle. And complicating all of this was the fact that many different tribes hunted, fished, gathered, and even grew crops in the same places. And since many migrated between summer and winter dwellings, or they had hunting villages that were used only in the winter, a vast amount of land was actually used by many different tribes. Even if the government's negotiators did come to the table with good intentions, which we've made pretty clear was not always the case, uh, they were generally trying to make treaties with tribes one at a time over land that was often used by many. This all means that following the Revolutionary War, a series of treaties, sometimes not even signed with the right native leaders, basically boiled down to this tribe will cede its land to the United States. In exchange, the United States will stop fighting this tribe. That was really the heart of the matter. These included the Treaty of Fort Stanwix of 1784, the Treaty of Fort McIntosh in 1785, and the Treaty of Fort Finney in 1786, among others. Uh, And of course, all of these treaties also had their own names from the points of view of the native tribes that they were with. As it became increasingly clear to the native peoples of the Northwest Territory that they could not individually reach a fair agreement with the United States government or defend themselves from a nation that was clearly willing to go to war over land, they began to form a confederacy. And so uh, just in case people are confused about all of these dates, all of these treaties were happening at the same time that Northwest Territory was being established and the Northwest Ordinance was being drafted. So it was all this giant soup of negotiations. So forming a confederacy was not a new idea to the North American native peoples at all. At various points, native tribes and bands had formed both temporary and long-lasting confederacies for a variety of reasons. 
These included survival during times of poor weather, resisting the incursions of other native and non-native settlers, and other other reasons. The Haudenosaunee, also known as the Iroquois Confederacy, was one of these existing confederacies, and it actually became part of the new confederacy that was formed in the Northwest Territory. Other tribes that became part of this confederacy included the Council of Three Fires, which is the Chippewa, Ottawa, and uh, Potawatomi, the Shawnee Nation, the Kickapoo, and the Miami, among many others. These allied tribes eventually became known as the Northwest Confederacy, the Wabash Confederacy, or the Miami Confederacy. And it was formed after delegates from all of these different tribes and existing confederacies met near Detroit in 1786. In 1788, Arthur St. Clair, who sometimes you'll hear it uh, pronounced more like Sinclair, and there's some debate about the correctness of which one, but we're going with St. Clair for this episode. Uh, it's also Scottish, and in Scotland, apparently, sometimes it's Sinclair. Yeah, so there are some options. We're picking St. Clair. That's what we got. Uh, so in 1788, Arthur St. Clair was appointed the governor of the Northwest Territory. So he was born in Scotland in 1734, 1736. The records aren't entirely clear. And he was also educated in Scotland. And eventually he joined the Royal American Regiment. He had combat experience in the colonies during the French and Indian War. And after marrying the niece of the governor of Massachusetts, St. Clair settled in Pennsylvania, where he took on a number of administrative duties, including being the register of deeds, as a surveyor, and as a judge in probate court. He fought on the Patriot side during the Revolutionary War, and he had been president of the Continental Congress. So St. Clair had a combined set of both military and government experiences that made him a logical choice for this post. One of the things he was supposed to do in this role was to draft a new treaty with all of the applicable Native American tribes in the area. And this treaty was mostly meant to cement the earlier treaties that had already been signed with individual tribes make them cover everything. So he was tasked to some degree with sorting out a big mess. And at the same time, unbeknownst to the native people he was treating with, Sinclair was also tasked with pitting tribes against one another so they would no longer present a united front against westward expansion. This goes back to that whole thing about whether we were treating with people fairly and evenly. After a series of negotiations, St. Clair and Native representatives signed two different treaties in January of 1789. They were both known as the Treaty of Fort Harmar. I also looked up pronunciations for that and did not find one. One was a treaty with the Six Nations, which were the Haudenosaunee. The other was called the Treaty with the Wyandot, etc. And that one included, quote, Sachems and warriors of the Wyandot, Delaware, Ottawa, Chippewa, Potawatomi, and Sac Nations, on the other part, these two treaties established peace and set boundary lines. In St. Clair's view, the two treaties also, because they were signed with two different sets of native tribes, would make a wedge between those tribes and sort of break up their united front. However, many tribes living farther west in the Northwest Territory actually refused to sign or even acknowledge these treaties. One was the Miami, who held that this land was theirs and they had never agreed to give it up, and that the tribes that had spoken for them did not actually have the authority to do so. And the Miami people's influence was significant. Many refugees from other tribes had wound up settling in and around the Miami nation's capital of Kekionga. 
In the spring of 1790, a trader and Indian agent familiar with the tribes and the region was sent in to try to negotiate with the Miami and the other tribes who were living farther west and closer to the Great Lakes. However, drawing on the ties of their confederacy, the the Miami and various other members that he talked to refused to negotiate with him without consulting with one another, and in some cases with a British representative who was stationed nearby in Detroit. This put the treaty process at an impasse, which meant that the United States started to prepare for war. And we're going to talk more about all of that after we pause once again for a break to talk about one of the great sponsors that keeps this show on the air. So to get back to our story, the Continental Army, which had been formed to fight on the Patriot side in the Revolutionary War, was dissolved in 1784, the year after the signing of the Treaty of Paris. To a lot of people in the newly formed United States, a standing army was antithetical to what their republic was supposed to be about. Taking the Continental Army's place was the 1st American Regiment. This was a volunteer force that was mainly focused on defending the frontier. For the first several years after the 1st American Regiment was created, it was really quite small, and it was supplemented with members of state militia as needed. In June of 1790, so after all of these events that we talked about before the break, A 1st Regiment patrol found a body in the Northwest Territory, and this body had been shot with both bullets and arrows. People obviously found this to be very threatening and started to call for a war to deal with the, quote, Indian problem. Two months later, General Hosiah Harmar set out from Fort Washington, near what is now Cincinnati, with about 320 regulars and about 1,100 militia to destroy Miami villages along the Maumee River. Smaller forces moved in at the same time from different directions on similar missions. St. Clair, wanting to preserve the diplomatic ties that were already in place, sent messages to British outposts and the tribes that had already signed treaties with the government that this action was not against them, but only against the, quote, banditti Indians. Harmer's force found several villages, which had mostly been abandoned, and he put them to the torch. He also burned large storehouses of food at these villages. His men killed what little resistance they encountered. However, on the way back to Fort Washington, his force split up, and in the process, they were goaded into chasing a native fighting force into what was basically an ambush. So even though Harmar successfully burned some things down, the American force experienced really heavy casualties and the whole campaign was put down as a failure. Native raids on American settlements increased through the following summer and winter. Finally, Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, requested more troops to increase the size of the army available to fight against the Northwest Territory's native tribes. And in March of 1791, George Washington put Arthur St. Clair in command of it. As before, this new fighting force still added to its numbers by relying on troops from state militias. With this larger army, St. Clair planned a new campaign. The first phase was to be led by Captain Merritt Scott, whose son had actually been killed in Harmer's previous failed campaign. Scott led a force of 800 mounted militia along the Wabash River in May of 1791. They stormed a series of settlements, killing 32 people who had uh, who were later described as warriors. They took more than 50 captives, and they experienced very few casualties of their own. The plan was for St. Clair to lead a larger campaign immediately after Scott's campaign concluded. 
However, St. Clair, who had gout, was actually ill and didn't actually get to their base of operations at Fort Washington until the middle of May, at which point he found it woefully undermanned. And so they pushed their start date until August 1st. The next phase against the Native people in the Northwest Territory was led by Lieutenant Colonel James Wilkinson, who destroyed a series of Native native settlements, including several that Scott had previously destroyed that had been rebuilt in the interim. Then, finally, St. Clair and his troops left Fort Washington in September of 1791, months behind schedule at this point. He had an army of about 2,000 men, along with about 20 Native American allies that he had intended to use as scouts. However, St. Clair's scouts weren't actually local to the area, and consequently, they weren't particularly effective. St. Clair started an extremely slow trek toward Kekianga, clearing a path through really difficult terrain and stopping to build forts along the way. The first one they built was Fort Hamilton, which is about 35 miles outside of Fort Washington. About 45 miles from there, he then built Fort Jefferson. They had trouble with cold, wet weather and impenetrable mud. They had to build bridges to move cannons and other heavy equipment over rivers and ravines. And as the season grew later, frost and ice ruined the foraging available for the horses and the other pack animals. Another big problem was dwindling manpower. Desertions were a big issue, especially as the journey dragged on and the season got colder. And then there were the volunteers who had signed up for a six-month enlistment. Their six months legitimately ended along the way, and then they were all discharged and sent back to Fort Washington. On top of that, they were constantly critically low on supplies, in part because the newly created process for supplying the newly created army was corrupt, thanks to everything from nepotism to paying for supplies in advance, only for them to never be delivered. A number of camp followers, including women and children, also added to the number of mouths to feed. And eventually, St. Clair had to send his infantry regulars to look for a supply convoy that had been delayed and then protect it once they found it. This meant the loss of some of his most experienced soldiers. This also meant that they were a large, loud, slow-moving force, which was, unbeknownst to St. Clair, constantly being observed, monitored, and reported on by the Western Confederacy's own spies, who were local to the area and therefore a lot more effective than St. Clair's spies. So basically, St. Clair knew nothing about the movements of the Native American force in the area, but they knew everything about his. This was definitely a case of him underestimating the abilities of his adversary. By the night of November 3rd, St. Clair was down to 1,400 soldiers. And that night, they set up a camp next to the Wabash River with the Kentucky militia on one side and the regulars and volunteers on the other. Neither part of this camp was fortified. That evening, a party of Miami men was spotted not far away, and soldiers were sent out to intercept them. When they came back, they told the second-in-command, Major General Richard Butler, that they expected a larger attack would be coming in the morning. However, St. Clair himself had already gone to bed, and Butler did not pass this message on to him. He also took no further steps to secure the camp after getting this advance heads up that they might see some action in the morning. On November 4th, a fighting force from the Western Confederacy attacked from both sides of the river. The Kentucky militia, isolated from the rest of the American force by being alone on the other side of the river, could offer very little support. 
and the main body of the American camp had arranged itself into two lines. As the Native American fighting force approached from both flanks, the front line fell back through the back one, which caused nothing but chaos. The Western Confederacy's men, who were led by Little Turtle of the Miami, Blue Jacket of the Shawnee, and others, fought nimbly from within tree cover, and they surrounded the American force really quickly and started picking people off. The men who were manning the Army's artillery were left undefended and were mostly killed before they could use their weapons, but even the ones that were able to fire had them aimed too high to do much good. Over the course of a four-hour battle, the American Army was basically slaughtered, along with most of the camp followers. Those who survived did so after mounted troops plowed an escape route through part of the Western Confederacy's fighting force. In the retreat, the Americans had to abandon an enormous amount of gear, including two forges, multiple teams of oxen, fully loaded pack animals, tents, 1,200 muskets and bayonets, all of the tools that they had been using to clear the trail and build bridges, and just on and on and on. They basically left behind everything they needed. The supplies lost were worth about $32,000, and that's in that day's calculation. So that would be more than $800,000 in today's currency as a rough equivalent. Among the American force, 918 were killed, including Major General Butler, and 276 were wounded. St. Clair's force was using a whole lot of the Army's available total manpower, and so this one action wiped out almost half of the United States Army. This uh, St. Clair absolutely had not anticipated that the Native Americans living in the Northwest Territory were capable of forming a confederacy like this and fighting together. And to be clear, sometimes this was even in spite of not speaking the same languages as one another. This event had a huge, far-reaching series of consequences. One was that the army uh, for the U.S. got a lot bigger. The tremendous loss of St. Clair's army led to the first congressional investigation. St. Clair was ultimately found not to be at fault, although he was forced to resign his command. It was ultimately blamed on inadequate forces, mismanagement, and inexperienced and undisciplined troops. The part that gets left out of that is the fact that the Native force did an extremely good job of combining their resources and then fighting in a way that their enemy did not expect, which was to surround them and fight from the trees and cause chaos. This congressional investigation also looked at the government's executive branch and the corruption and inefficiency within the military contractor system that had caused St. Clair to have so many problems getting supplies. That aspect of the investigation started to cement the idea of executive privilege as President George Washington figured out how to handle information that would have implicated the Secretary of War Knox and Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton and all of these issues of fraud and nepotism that were plaguing the Army's supply chain. Because the United States was not willing to give up the Northwest Territory, it mounted yet another campaign in 1794. This one, however, went the opposite way. Major General Anthony Mad Anthony Wayne, the new commander-in-chief of the recently expanded army, defeated the Western Confederacy at the Battle of Fallen Timbers on August 20th, 1794. The Treaty of Greenville was signed the following year, and this was called a, quote, Treaty of Peace between the United States of America and the tribes of Indians called the Wyandots, Delawares, Shawnees, Ottawas, Chippewas, Patawatomas, Miamis, Eel Rivers, Weyas, Kickapoos, Piankshaws, and Kakaskias. 
So once again, this was a treaty that ended hostilities against the native population for the price of ceding their land to the United States. Uh, this was not the last time, of course, that this would happen. That is an ongoing theme of relations between the United States government and native tribes going on long beyond that. Do you have listener mail that is maybe not quite so uh, dire? No, my listener mail is not dire. Hooray! Uh, it is from Rachel, and Rachel says, Hi, Tracy and Holly, and then she talks about where she works. So I'm skipping that part for privacy. This is about our moonshine episode, and Rachel says, The government taxation of high-proof spirits is still a very real issue, even today, with most small distilleries getting only about 40% of what each bottle costs after all the taxes and fees. Federal and state governments are slowly but surely starting to make changes that will benefit these small distilleries so that they can grow and serve their local economies. The distillery that she works at, which I am remaining nameless, uh, has been in business since 2010 when they started with one 60-gallon copper still. We now have a 660-gallon still and have ordered a second still that we'll have sometime next year. We work hard to stay within the law, but it's easy to see why someone would want to make moonshine. You stand to make a lot more money that way. Uh, And then she talks about a moonshine festival that's nearby every Memorial Day weekend and says, I'm not sure of the history, but I believe it's been going on before moonshine was made legal in Ohio a few years ago. That's moonshine in quotes, because like most spirits enthusiasts, it's not really moonshine if it's legal, but Ohio thinks it is. And then she says, if we ever stop by forever in her part of the world, we can stop by and have a tour of the distillery, which I'd be up for. That sounds great to me. Yeah. So Let's thank go. you, Rachel. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel, with that uh, that update about how all of the extremely high taxes on spirits that we talked about in that Moonshine episode still exist and affect things today. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find all sorts of cool information on all kinds of cool things. We also have some new articles that are going up regularly in a series called Ridiculous History at HowStuffWorks.com, which I am really excited about. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find show notes, uh, an archive of every episode we have ever done, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 